This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy, our first new episode of 2021. We took two weeks off and uh, we missed talking to all of you, our listeners. And uh, we are back. There, there are a number of things to talk about in the history and current crisis of democracy in our world today. And we're going to start the year by talking about uh, the topic which I think dominates not just the news of today, but will dominate the history of our period, uh, the series of of uh, riotous, violent attacks upon the institutions, the core institutions of American democracy in the most recent few years. Uh, This culminated in many ways with uh, the violent insurrectionary attack on the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday, January 6th. And we have with us today uh, a leading historian who has done more work than anyone else to look at the series of violent attacks on democracy and its institutions and its principles over the last four years. Uh, This is, of course, historian uh, Nicole Hemmer. She's a political historian specializing in media, conservatism, and the far right the author of a book uh, that really uh, opened many of our eyes to the role of right-wing media, uh, Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media, and the Transformation of American Politics. Um, She is also uh, the founder, co-editor of Made by History, one of the most important uh, historical analyses and sections on uh, American politics and history today in the Washington Post. Uh, She's a columnist for about 7,000 other newspapers, uh, writes everywhere. You can't avoid her work, and I encourage you to read her work wherever you see it. Relevant for our discussion today, though, is her fantastic um, collection of discussions in her six-part podcast series, A12, The Story of Charlottesville, The White Power Terrorism in Charlottesville, Virginia of 2017. We're going to talk about that, of course, today. Uh, Nikki, thanks so much for making time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Nikki Hemmer, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. And uh, you wrote a lot of poems over the holidays, Zachary, but but this one, I think, took particular effort on your part because you were moved yourself. What is the title of your poem today? Perhaps you will consider this a eulogy. Okay, let's hear it. I see myself in the television screen where the man stands in a sweatshirt that says six million was not enough. When I was six years old with my mother and sister staring up at it in the snow with a fever and a headache. I feel that heat, those aching bones, can almost touch the remnant snow where the jackboots and the militiamen and the flags are now used as battering rams to enter the proud rotunda of the old building on the hill. I can smell the polished leather chairs of the chambers where the gunfight erupts, feet from the ghost of Lincoln. I can feel that dizzying fire as the windows are broken and the china porcelain of the land smashed on the marble blocks. Just beyond the steps of those marble balustrades where I stood and watched the building fade into the snowy hill, a camera is punched out, a microphone crushed, and that battle flag, a bloodstain, is on the steps. I am reminded of that photograph, archaic now, of Boston in black and white, a flag, dark and ominous, stabbed into a crowd, as if the patriots are the insurrectionists, 
the beer belly putsch unfolding in the halls before our eyes. And, perhaps you will consider this a eulogy, I see myself, six years old, trying to catch sight of the tip of the dome from my sick bed in the hotel room, and I see the light, tripped fantastic, oh the glow of flames, on the sidewalks, trashed and overthrown, the trembling sidewalks of Washington. I love the flashbacks in time in that, Zachary, from the present to the past. Uh, what is your poem about? My poem is really about watching uh, the destruction or, or the defacement of, of such an iconic American institution as the United States Capitol that we all grew up revering. Um, and it's about uh, living through that in a very emotional way. And I was constantly thinking about my experience, not, not even coming close to the Capitol, but seeing it from afar and how important that was to me. And I think that it was really a very horrific moment to watch it happening in real time. But I think it was also something that I will remember forever, sitting on the couch, watching the TV as suddenly this erupted uh, in D.C. Uh, Nikki, how did, how did you experience the, the attack on the Capitol last week? Well, there was something eerily familiar about it. I mean, I was watching it on television um, from my home in New York City, um, but for as much as it was a unparalleled event, um, there was something that was so familiar from watching what had unfolded in Charlottesville, watching what has happened with militia violence over the past several years. I mean, we've seen armed people surrounding and mobbing state capitol buildings. Um, we've seen the mix of Confederate and U.S. flags and all of these other symbols Um of both Trumpism and of the white power movement all mingling together. And so in those moments, it just felt so similar. But of course, it felt very different as well, because as, as Zach's poem really makes this point, unlike the scene in Charlottesville, the U.S. Capitol is a symbol. It's a symbol of American government. It's a symbol of American democracy, um, so much so that it was one of the three places that terrorists on 9-11 sought to destroy when they were striking at the heart of American power. And so to see U.S. citizens calling themselves patriot, uh, finishing the work in some ways that those terrorists were unable to do on that day um, was something that not only was a punch in the gut, but I think explains why Americans are so just startled and overcome right now, because it wasn't just an attack on a small town in Virginia. It was an attack right on the, the heart and the seat of American democracy. Yet, in spite of these differences, you certainly see a continuity, a connection between what you experienced firsthand and recounted so well uh, in Charlottesville in August 2017 and what we saw now in 2021, yes? Yes. I mean, there are so many parallels that it's it's hard to list them all. I mean, one that was particularly striking to me was I was quite taken aback in Charlottesville in 2017 at not only the massive police presence, but how ineffective those law enforcement officers were and how unwilling they were to engage with the white power terrorists that, that were in Charlottesville that day, even though they'd had plenty of warning that they were going to be a source of significant violence. And once again, in the Capitol, you know, there had been weeks of notice that this kind of organizing was happening. Everyone had a heads up 
that this could go badly very quickly. But this persistent unwillingness to take seriously right-wing violence in the United States, watching that play out again after we've had so much warning about this. I mean, the, the Department of Homeland Security under Donald Trump calls right-wing violence the most persistent and lethal threat in the United States. And yet still, there is not that kind of response that you would want to see when armed insurrectionists appear at the U.S. Capitol. And so I was very struck by the continuity in terms of policing and in terms of the lack of imagination around the threat of this kind of violence. What do you see as the roots of this sort of ineffectiveness at the Capitol beyond just ignoring white terrorism? But but what unfolded? We still haven't had a sort of clear picture of what went wrong from a law enforcement and, and Department of Defense perspective. So I think that there are a couple of things. And you're right that we don't have the full picture yet. We don't know which people were complicit in what happened on uh, last Wednesday. So we don't want to go too far. But I mean, certainly, again, this this lack of imagination, but also we have plenty of reports about the way that white power activists have infiltrated police departments, have infiltrated the military, how many veterans are active in uh, um, white power and radical right-wing groups, which is not to say at all that all police officers or all members of the military are involved, but just to say that these institutions are particularly vulnerable. And so part of what we're asking law enforcement to do is to imagine themselves as one of the sources of threat. And you can understand why that would be very difficult to do. So I think that that's part of it as well. And then there is, you know, a challenge, especially when it comes to white protesters, an insistence on seeing these events as free speech events, um, as primarily about the First Amendment, when there has been so many intimations of violence around it. I mean, in the case of Charlottesville, there had been a massive act of political intimidation and political violence that took place on August 11th with the torchlight march onto the grounds of the University of Virginia, the attacks on anti-racist activists. And yet still, the event the next day was treated as a free speech event, and the police and law enforcement saw themselves there to protect free speech rather than to defend against political violence. And I think that speech framework needs to have a little more um, analysis. And we need to think a little bit harder about the way that the claim of free speech is used um, to cover the uh, planning for violence. Uh, that's such an important topic, Nikki. Um, and I think it's important just to articulate uh, what what is the difference between, uh, as you see it, a free speech uh, demonstration, like a Black Lives Matter demonstration, what we saw in Lafayette Square, or what you had in Charlottesville after the terrible violence and right-wing uh, rioting. Uh, what is the difference between a free speech event and uh, what you're clearly identifying as a, as a violent um white supremacist event? Well, a couple of things. I mean, in the case of many of these efforts, there is a, it's planning for violence, right? There is a lot of coordinating beforehand in order to make sure that people come with arms that won't be taken away from them. So in the case of Charlottesville, um, they obviously had long guns, but they made sure they had chains and sticks and other types of weapons. Um, and of course this was the case in, um, 
in D.C. as well, though there were some people who carried arms, uh, which is not allowed in Washington, D.C., they had other forms of weapons as well. So if people are planning ahead of time to engage in mass acts of violence, that's a pretty good sign that it's not a free speech um, rally. But I think that and uh, legal expert Dahlia Lithwick is very good at this. She talks about the ways that the Second Amendment swallows the first. Um, and this is a, a bit more of a gray area. But if you have a group of people who are protesting while armed to the teeth, that doesn't really create a space for counter-protesting and for a real exchange of ideas or for there to be an equal opportunity for free speech. So I think in addition to not treating plans for violence as though they are free speech um, or plans for a free speech rally, I think we also need to think about the way that heavily armed groups like we saw in Virginia um, early last year can become a point at which people's choice to bear arms actually overwhelms our political freedoms, our freedom to assemble, um, our freedom of speech, and the freedom of our representatives to gather and conduct the work of, of government. Right, right. I think it, it's such a, an eloquent point you made and so important that you know there is a difference, it seems to me, between a group coming together to peacefully demonstrate in favor of civil rights or in favor of inclusion or whatever the, whatever it is, uh, versus a group that's seeking to uh, undermine institutions, create violence, and create havoc. Uh, and and it, it does seem as if that's that's what occurred both in Charlottesville and in Washington, D.C. and many other places. Uh, Nikki, you've spent so much time looking so closely, as, as, as historians do, at, at events in Charlottesville. Who were the people involved in Charlottesville? And do you see parallels in, in, in the uh, people involved in Washington, D.C. as well? So in the buildup to Charlottesville, which was organized by a proud boy named Jason Kessler, so a member of this far-right street gang, and by Richard Spencer, who is a, a white power advocate, um, what you saw as far as like the roster of speakers, even though this was done under the label Unite the Right, this was largely a group of Klansmen like David Duke, violent neo-Nazis. So from the very get-go, this was something that was being organized on the violent far-right um, for violent ends, even though it was was framed as a free speech rally. And when it came to that day, you saw all kinds of groups, um, Identity Europa, the Traditional Workers Party, all of these violent far-right, some of them neo-fascist, some neo-Confederate, some neo-Nazi groups coming together. Um, and they represented sort of the uniting of this far violent right, this far fascist right, but it didn't have much appeal beyond those groups. Um, even though the president would go on to say that there were very fine people on both sides, there simply weren't very fine people collaborating with um, violent neo-Nazis. I feel definitely, definitionally we can say that. When it came to the violence in the Capitol, you saw a lot of those same groups. Now, many of them were incognito. We know that the Proud Boys were there. Um, they were leading some of the action in the Capitol, but they were not wearing their traditional uniforms. Um, you also had contingents of people who believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory. You had people from America First and the Groypers, which is this far-right replacement in some ways for the alt-right. And then you just had people who were Trump supporters who believed, because the president and their media outlets had told them, that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump and they needed to do something to stop it. And in many ways, looking at it now, the, the mission of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville to bring all of these right-wing groups together 
was actually played out at the U.S. Capitol building because you had all of these groups united together, a much bigger group of people united under the Trump banner who staged the attack on the Capitol. And so there's definitely a continuity there, um, but it was just a much broader coalition thanks to the work that Donald Trump has done over the past four years. And, And what do these rioters and insurrectionists, what do they hope to achieve? I mean, in a certain way, it seems um, like such a, a doomed cause, right? I mean, when they, you know, they, they cause violence in Charlottesville, they cause violence at the Capitol, and it, it generally galvanizes people in opposition to them. Um, the vote certification continued. The University of Virginia continued, continued on, continued to admit diverse students, maybe even doubled down on admitting diverse students. So, so what do they hope to achieve? So it depends on the group. I mean, I do think that there were a lot of people at the Capitol who believed that they really were going to be able to stop the election from being certified. That we might look at that and say that's a a mass delusion, but I think there were a lot of people there who really believed that was going to happen. Others are looking to sow chaos. We talk some uh, when we talk about the far right about accelerationist about um, there were there wasn't a big boogaloo uh, contingent, but people who want to start a civil war, who want to destabilize the United States, who want to bring down democracy and replace it with a far right fascist regime. There are certainly people there who had that goal as well. Um, people who uh, believe that they're right and believe that. Because they're right, they should be able to use unrestrained force in order to get what they want. You can also think of these events. I mean, certainly we thought about Charlottesville this way. I think we'll ultimately think about the U.S. Capitol attack this way as recruitment events. So what we saw after Charlottesville was the collapse of some of the groups involved, um, Identity Europa and the Traditional Workers Party, those both disbanded um, in the years after Charlottesville. But we have seen a tremendous amount of far-right terrorism in the United States and around the world, some of which was inspired by Charlottesville. And I look at the U.S. Capitol attack, and that to me seems like a huge recruiting event for people who look at what happened and they're not horrified by it, but they're excited by it. They're inspired by it. Could you actually bring down the U.S. government if you were just willing to put enough force behind it? I think a lot of people looked at that and said, yeah, I'd like to get in on that. So uh, when I think forward to what this will inspire, what this was meant to achieve, one of the things some of the people there wanted it to achieve is the growth of these far-right movements. Right. And it's it's a point that historians of fascism have made for so long, uh, which is that the violence becomes an end in and of itself. That's one of the definitions of fascism, at least for historians, that that it's a self-actualizing uh, mechanism, right? You go out and you, you, you create violence and you feel you're valuable. You feel you matter. You feel you have voice because you're doing this. We, we, we find that so counterproductive from the way we think about democracy, but, but we're thinking about it in the wrong, wrong framework, aren't we? Yeah, I think democracy is the wrong framework for thinking about this. Um, We've seen this a lot in the aftermath of the attack on the U.S. Capitol, that there have been people who want to see this as Democrats versus Republicans or left versus right to sort of fit it in the framework of politics that we are used to talking about. But this is not that, right? This is 
pro-democracy versus anti-democracy. This is pro-fascism versus anti-fascism. This is pro-liberalism versus illiberalism. And those are the terms of the debate and the terms of the fight. And if we don't acknowledge that we're playing on a very different political ground now, we are going to continue to misunderstand the power of this political violence in our midst. What about the redefinition of patriotism? We saw so many people as they were literally tearing down or, or attempting to tear down the institutions of American government, battering themselves into the Capitol with American flags. How, how, how do these groups understand the idea of patriotism? And, and, and how has that moved beyond the sort of institutions of government that we usually associate with those symbols? It's such a great question, Zachary. And you had referenced in your poem this award-winning photograph from a 1974 anti-busing um, demonstration where a white man had picked up an American flag and tried to spear a black man with it. And that symbol of the inversion of patriotism or the defense of a kind of white American patriotism is something that we've seen before in our history. We see these images from the 1920s of the Ku Klux Klan marching down Washington, D.C. with the Capitol in the background, waving American flags. So this isn't the first time that the American flag and the language of patriotism have been co-opted for violence or for anti-democratic causes. What I think is so effective about co-opting those symbols, about talking about themselves in the language of patriots, is that it, it it can muddle the conversation for people who aren't as tuned in to these conversations. I think that for many Americans, when they talk about things like fascism, they see it as something foreign. And that's something that we saw in Charlottesville, right? The, the flying of the Nazi flag in Charlottesville was so jarring to so many people for a lot of reasons, but especially because here was this foreign symbol being um, marched down American streets. And we often think the same way about fascism, that it's something foreign. And so a fascist aren't going to be chanting USA, USA. That's something that patriots do, that Americans do. And so by trying to claim the flag, trying to claim patriotism, what we're seeing is a kind of muddying of the waters about how anti-democratic this movement actually is. But there's a real power in symbols and there's a real power in claiming the legacy of America. The people who were marching on the Capitol were calling out 1776 because they saw themselves as working in the tradition of the people who founded the country and threw off uh, the British monarchy. And so it's not just powerful as a signal to outsiders, but it is powerful as a message to themselves about the rightness of their cause. And, and your your point about symbolism, Nikki, uh, brings up also the question, of course, of uh, the Confederate flag. And uh, one of the horrible consequences of uh, the events in Washington is now the Confederate flag, which never flew uh, within or was never carried within the Capitol during the Civil War, was now carried within the Capitol and flown at the Capitol by these insurrectionists. Uh, and of, of course, Confederate symbols were used in Charlottesville in, in 2017. What's the significance of that? We have been in the midst of decades long, but also the last five years in particular, a real conversation and a real battle over the meaning of these Confederate symbols. Um, and if you had asked me 
back in 2017, whether I thought that the Confederate flag would ever be marched through the Capitol, I would have said no, because of course that was a time when we were starting to take down Confederate flags and when we were starting to take down Confederate statues. Um, But there are people who are really fervent in their defense of those symbols and what they stand for, which is a um, white racist American past. And I think that even more than that, there is, if history is not repeating itself, certainly the same historical process that we saw after the Civil War is something that Donald Trump and his supporters are engaged in. You know, in the United States, after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, there was a kind of devil's bargain made um, to have unity and have peace among white Americans, to move forward and just agree that everyone um, had fought honorably and had been patriotic in their fights during the Civil War. And that peace and unity was built on the back of Black Americans who would be second-class citizens in the Jim Crow South well into the 1960s. And the same kind of lost cause mythology, the same kind of desire for unity, um, the same kind of we need you to acknowledge that we were right, even when we were fighting for very wrong things, um, that's what we see shaping the debate after the attack on the U.S. Capitol and that kind of lost cause narrative that fueled um, the white South's Confederate memory for so long is fueling the idea that, you know, Donald Trump actually won the election and these people really believed that he won it. And so they were just in their cause, even if they went a little too far. So it's not just that the Confederate symbols are still there. It's not just that the ideas of rebellion and defense of a white America are still there, but the same kind of historical processes of corrupting our historical memory are playing out even as we speak. But but what about those who who are uh, complicit in many of these many of these incidents uh, and, and 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 terror attacks, but but who are working from within the institutions and who come from some of the most elite institutions in America? People like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who while not necessarily complicit in the violence, spurred on the kind of lies that caused the violence at the Capitol uh, last week. So this is a great question too, because there is a fundamental misunderstanding of racism and of fascism and of anti-democratic action, where we tend to think about these things as being caused by ignorance, being caused by a lack of exposure to other things, being caused in part by poverty. Um, There was a piece that was written after the attack on the Capitol um, that was making fun of the people who were there and basically saying, you know, these were poor white trash people who had like come to the U.S. Capitol and who were roaming around slack jawed looking at everything. That's not who these people were. And this is including like the, the people in the Senate. This was a coalition of people, a lot of whom have a lot of money, a lot of whom are well-educated, who come up through these institutions. Um, certainly Harvard and Yale have produced more than their fair share of people who um, support racist ideas, who support anti-democratic ideas. Thinking about this as a problem of class or thinking of this as a problem of ignorance, I think is is a real mistake. I think we have to think about it as a problem of power. And that power is refined in all sorts of 
or that lust for power is, is refined in all sorts of institutions, including at Ivy League universities, including at um, military academies, including in the U.S. Congress. And just because somebody like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley isn't pulling out a weapon, they are still complicit in this violence and they are still doing violence to American democracy. I think that's something that has gotten a little bit lost in our conversation in the week since this happened, is that even as you had this violent mob that was attacking the Capitol in order to subvert American democracy, what they actually did was they interrupted a group of Republicans who were in the process of using the Congress to subvert American democracy. So they might have different means, but they're very much on the same page. This is a, a much bigger project that's being fought on um, on a lot of different fronts. It's so well said, Nikki. And uh, of course, when the um, rioters uh, and insurrectionists breached the Capitol, entered the Capitol, uh, the members of the Senate and the House were debating, if you want to call it that, right, uh, efforts by Senator uh, Ted Cruz and others to hold up the counting of the electors from Arizona without any evidence of any fraud. And so it's, it's, it's actually very symbolic that the uh, insurrectionists had members of Congress who, in a sense, were doing their bidding inside the building at this well, and, time. Uh, yeah, please. And, and Jeremy, then as there was still blood drying on the floor of the Capitol, those same members of Congress went back and continued to carry out that work. Right. So right. it was um, it, it was something that wasn't even interrupted except for a few hours um, by this by this insurrection at the Capitol. Absolutely true, and and uh, I, I actually just published a piece on this yesterday. That, that, you know, it's it, your point is so well said that the um, members of Congress and others who have been supportive of these lies about the election and others are some of the most educated, privileged people. So it's very hard to come away from this moment and think that education is the solution. Uh, one of the things we found was that actually the Republicans are more educated than the Democrats. The Republican supporters of the lies are more educated than the people who are exposing the lies and, and trying to stick to the truth. So, so what do we do, Nikki? If, if education's not the solution, you and I as educators always like to think that, that we can <laughs> teach people to do the right thing, but maybe not. Uh, what, what, what should we do? So obviously, if I had a, a complete answer to this, I would be out there pursuing it. Um, I think it's a very difficult problem. I think that it's a generational problem. I think we've started to see one of the things that you do, which is that you don't provide platforms for the dissemination and the amplification of lies that are harmful to democracy. Donald Trump was kicked off of social media less than a week ago, and that has a real effect when his tweets are no longer allowed to you know, ricochet throughout social media when his lies aren't able to be amplified on Facebook, that makes a real difference. When these QAnon sites are taken down from social media, it doesn't end the conspiracy. It doesn't end the power that the president has, but what it does is it starts to slow it. Um, and it could be that, you know, we're, we're several years too late on this in a way, because we have now uh, the better part of a generation that has grown up in social media, having algorithms and sites constantly expose people to racism, to anti-democratic ideas, to all sorts of conspiracies. You know, it's one thing for someone to go on the internet and already be radicalized and look for groups to connect with. It's another thing for someone to go on YouTube and maybe they're interested in hearing 
a conservative speak. And so they click on a link and then the next video that they're showed is somebody who's a little more to the right. And then by the end of the day, they're watching Richard Spencer, a neo-Nazi talk about the need to defend the the white race. Like we have to dismantle some of those systems and that's not an educational effort, but it's just how do we stop mass poisoning the brains of millions of Americans? It's not a cohesive answer. I mean, there's a, a generational civic education um, process in which we have to um, reaffirm that democracy is a good form of government. There is institutional work to be done to make sure that institutions are trustworthy before we can begin to rebuild people's trusts in institutions. So there's a lot of work to be done. It's not going to be done next year. There's still a lot of danger ahead. But it's work that we, if we haven't already started on it, we need to to start on it now. And technology companies have a role to play. Officials have a role to play. Professors have a role to play. All citizens um, and people in the U.S. have a role to play if they are committed to the defense of American democracy. Uh, that that's very pra- pragmatic and and I think very helpful, uh, Nikki. And and I think you've talked about this already in the case of Charlottesville, and and in some ways it's it's a continuation of what what you're defining as a long term project to restore understanding, faith, and commitment to democratic principles and practices. Uh, and of course, we can only begin by exposing the horror by looking at the horror in front of us, uh, rather than trying to cover it up. Uh, Zachary, as as someone who's deeply concerned. About about these events, as I know many of your friends are. Um, how do you think young people are, are looking at this? Do you, do you see hope in, in much of what Nikki's talking about here? Um, because it is a hopeful message of how we can restore faith in our democracy. Do, do you see hope in this? I, I think so. I, I think my generation is really having a, a political trial by fire um, mm. this past year and a half or so. Uh, but I also think that I, I do think that education is in many ways a solution as well, because I think part of the problem is that too often we teach history and civics as if there are these many different perspectives on government, each of them equally valid, instead of actually talking about uh, like ac- accurate historical analysis and, and an understanding of American democracy as a flawed but but evolving system. And I think that part of the problem is that we failed to to educate people on the principles behind our democracy, even while we've been teaching them how to take advantage of them, uh, take advantage of the processes in our institutions. Zachary, do you think enough is done to uh, encourage young people to commit their lives and think about public service in the truest sense uh, that Nikki's talking about it as, as faith and commitment to democracy rather than just success and getting ahead. One, one of the things we've certainly seen at universities, both uh, Nikki and I have commented on, and Nikki referred to it, I've, I've written about it too, which is the, you know, the sense that universities are more training people to succeed materially rather than to commit themselves to our principles. How do you see that at the high school and middle school level? I don't think we do enough to, to, to educate young people about the importance of public service, but I don't think that means like telling, like, like, like being sanctimonious about and, 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 and la 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 about how great it is to serve one's country. I think it's really about by, by leading by example and, and, and showing students how they can lead successful lives while still contributing to their communities and not simply gaining success for themselves. 
Great. Uh, Nikki, I want to give you the last word. You, you've shared so many insights with us, and I'm always uh, so in awe of your ability to discuss these very difficult issues in clear and courageous uh, ways. What are you looking to see in the next few weeks? What would be positive steps that we all can look for and even contribute to in the next few weeks? Well, I think we are seeing some positive signs, although they're small. But I mean, having corporations come out and say that they're no longer going to fund the Republicans who voted against um, certifying the election, having some Republicans come forward and say not only are they going to impeach, but being very clear about the president's complicity in the things that happened last week. Um, I think that those are, are good signs because they are signals that there is the possibility of not just a democratic opposition to all of this, but a pro-democracy alliance emerging. Now, that's something that is going to require quite a lot of sustenance. It's going to require quite a lot of incentivizing in order for it to hold together. But if we can think about our politics in those terms, pro-democracy, not pro-democracy, think about our alliances in those terms, and really commit ourselves to strengthening the foundation of American democracy and defending it, then I think we're moving in a good direction. And so looking forward in the next few weeks, in the next few months, if you see some of these alliances continue to hold together, if we don't immediately after the election of, after the inauguration of Joe Biden, fall back into the same old patterns of politics that have been um, defining our politics, at least for the last 30 years, um, then I think that there's something to hope for. If we do see kind of a return to normal, then it is incumbent upon us to get out there and to continue to raise the alarm bells about what has happened to American democracy, how we need to defend it, and really get down to the, the grassroots and the hard and boring work of defining and defending democracy. Uh, I, I couldn't, couldn't think of a better way to say it than you just did. Uh, our unity comes from our commitment to democracy, not to a party or covering up the bad behavior of the past. And we've learned that lesson time and again in our history and the history of other societies. Nikki, uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights on the events of the last few years, their historical perspective, and, and giving us really a hopeful, uh, though difficult, uh, pathway forward. Uh, it's really wonderful having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, of course, to uh, Zachary for your eloquent poem and insights. And thank you most of all to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.